0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wild Hearts, the podcast dedicated to sharing the stories and lessons from the founders and operators changing the world. Our guest today is the co-founder and CEO of Forage, Tom Bronskill.
1: That evening, I got a phone call from the founder of that, accelerator yeah. who basically said, if you leave your job in seven days and start full-time on this, I will give you your seed funding and you'll be part of our cohort. And I'd never
0: raise this with my wife. I'd never raise it with anyone. Lululemon, JP Morgan, Walmart, Red Bull, Lyft, Bank of America, and the list of prized customer logos goes on into the hundreds. Four million students have an account with Forage. It equips students via simulated programs with real-life skills and real-life job experiences. And ultimately, it makes them 2.6 times more likely to land a job. And so in return, employees receive bought-in students who show their passion and skills and not just tell them. In today's episode, Tom Brunskill shares the lessons from closing his first few customers, the secrets to selling to these big organizations, right at the beginning, using sales momentum from Australia and launching into the US, how Winston Churchill played a role in his upbringing, Forage's ultimate vision for educating tomorrow's labor force, And a heck of a lot more. Despite the early success of Forage, Tom is humble, down to earth, and frankly, just so honest. And I hope you adore this conversation as much as we enjoyed recording it. Here's to the episode. So I want to start this episode deep. Speaking of deep, tell us about your mum's story when she left school at 16 yeah so
1: my mom left home when she was uh 17 like nothing about like if she told you the story there's nothing particularly unique from her perspective it's probably a very common experience of you know particularly women of that generation but she was raised Uh, in a small country town in New South Wales called Hard and She was raised on a dairy farm. We constantly tell us as kids about her waking up at 4am and freezing hands and milking the cows in the morning. But the reason why I, you know, I think it's relevant to what we do today is her trajectory through education and, and how that was a very different experience to my journey through education i think i'm i had like a very privileged upbringing especially when you look at uh the education that i was like fortunate enough to receive but the experience of my mum kind of bought into sharp focus that privilege uh so you know when she left home when she was uh super young you know she had aspirations to want to go and do kind of higher education study at university but that just was not the dumb thing you know I, I think she was you know even by kind of close people around her family that it was it was actively discouraged that that was something that, that she should go up and do i think she wanted to go and study geography or become a teacher and that route just like was not available the reason why i think about that a lot is when i do reflect on my own privilege and the opportunities that have been presented to me i'm kind of like struck by like how arbitrary that privilege is that that kind of fell on my lap and i was able to go off and do a ton of things that were never available to my mom or not just uniquely my mom just you know most people kind of within that generation especially in a small country town like Harden, and you know my mom has never like harbored any bitterness but it certainly informed her work ethic and certainly informed her quite honestly working her ass off to ensure that us kids had the opportunity to, you know, there was always a strong emphasis on education, you know, the opportunity to go off and do things that that just were never available to her. She would have been, whatever she had decided to do, she would have been exceptional at it. But that, you know, I definitely kind of carry that, that story around with me as I think about like what we're building at Forage. Didn't she nearly join IBM? She did, she did. I think the story goes that she said to my grandfather that uh, she'd heard of this new company. She was like moving to Canberra, which was like the big smoke for someone from Harden, And there was a new company kind of rolling into town and she wanted to go up and work there. And that company happened to be IBM in retrospect, but at the time, obviously, IBM's brand power didn't. Uh, extends to the busy street of Harden. And again, I think it was uh, actively kind of discouraged. That path wasn't like understood. And yeah, I uh, also to go off and pursue that career opportunity. So yeah, you know, you everyone's always got those uh, stories of what could have been, but I do kind of chuckle when I hear that story of that company ended up being IBM. Hmm.
0: That's amazing that how different her life could have been and maybe touch on why education was a really important part of your upbringing.
1: Yeah. You know, I spent time as a kid living in, initially I was brought up in Melbourne but came from a regional family. So moved to Wagga during my, you know, most of my primary school years. And it was, as I said, there was like a really strong emphasis on education from my parents and was really fortunate to receive scholarship assistance, bursary assistance to go off and uh, receive a private school education in Sydney. And, you know, especially, I suppose, if you kind of look on my mum's side of the family, that was like an opportunity that was afforded to me and that was not afforded to my family, to 99.9% of my friends at the time. And that's like where that theme of, you obviously got to make the most of the opportunities that are given to you, but I've always thought about like how arbitrary it is that like I was given that opportunity versus others. And there is like no doubt in my mind that a private school education in Sydney ultimately gave me a much wider scope of opportunities. It increased the probability, it increased the chances, it increased the surface area of luck that I had to go off and pursue, you know, a great higher education, pursue kind of have that access to parts of the workforce that, I don't think are uh, really accessible for many kids who don't receive that type of education, especially young kids being brought up in, you know, regional parts of Australia. And so I'm sure we'll jump into what we do at Forage later, but I've always been struck by that idea of like how do you kind of democratize access to the workforce? How do you kind of get a crowbar in there and open it up to all parts of the population so that you know as corny or cringe as aspirational as it sounds like we can work towards you know meritocracy in the way that people can access different parts of the labor force and you know dignified jobs and and careers and whatnot and uh yeah always came back to that sense of how arbitrary it was that i got that opportunity and many others didn't
0: i mean it's an incredible framing that you've brought to that experience and it's a privilege to have the privilege, but also to acknowledge just how special it's been and a compounding force in your life to now be doing what you're doing. And we will touch on that. But Tom Humphrey has told me to ask you, who, for those who don't know, sits on Forager's board, what your middle name is. Oh, no.
1: He has really kicked me under the bus here. My middle name. I like to say my middle name's George because that's the first of my two middle names. And I usually skip the next one. But no, my my middle name is Capability. Anyone (laughs) who has the absolute pleasure of meeting my father will know he thinks a little bit differently. He's a little bit eccentric at times. And uh, he had an obsession with Capability Brown, who was a famous Victorian 19th century British landscaper. And one gave him the opportunity to choose one name, uh, out of the four names that I had, and he chose capability, and uh, that's really caused a lot of uh, interesting moments for me throughout my life, especially going through border control. But I've got uh, <laughs> two, young brothers and, uh, two, two younger brothers and a younger sister who have completely normal, you know, Sarah Jane, Henry David, Max Alexander, and and I was the one who ended up with capability as my little name. But yeah, uh, Tom, Tom's clever for including that
0: and. What was his obsession with british landscapers it's always something new like
1: honestly i could not i could not give you like an answer to that <laughs> my, my dad my, my dad is someone who loves to go into deep dives into kind of different types of history i kind of always think about when i was a kid getting dropped off at primary school in Wagga. And every morning, dad would have like uh, the original recordings of like Winston Churchill's wartime speeches playing, and he'd play it to us like wow. every single morning. And I was like, in retrospect, I was like, I must have been the only kid in all of Oga who was like, <laughs> uh, yeah. or when other kids were getting, you know. The giant Caterpillar, which I'm currently reading to my two-year-old or normal books as kids, so I was getting read. But I think Iliad, I was getting read Marcus Aurelius' meditations or whatever. <laughs> so he that is, um his head is like very firmly planted in the past. And you know, obviously during that period, British landscape designers were on the mind. Wow. In actual fact, he, he found out that um later. Capability's first name was actually Lancelot, but only people know him as Capability. And so Dan was like, in retrospect, I may have gone with Lancelot, and I've never quite figured <laughs> out which one would have been worse Lancelot <laughs> or oh, Capability.
0: Wow. Wait, tell me more about your dad. That is an insane element to your brain that I had no idea about, but that is so unique.
1: Yeah, he's, he's an incredible person. He just thinks about the world differently. Both my parents. My parents are very different to one another, but they've had an incredible marriage, but they are just like very different people.
0: Why are you smiling?
1: I I literally, I'm like playing back, like I suppose all these moments (laughs) of my childhood where I've looked at my mom and looked at my dad and been like, I don't understand how this works, but like it it, it works, Uh, but certainly very heavily influenced by my father and maybe you've heard you listen the listeners about this like recent TikTok craze around the, how many times if you thought about the Roman Empire? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I had that drilled into me from my dad from a very early age. And this is like a very triggering craze that we're going through uh, right at the moment. But certainly I suppose like my love of reading, my love of history, my love of, yeah, just thinking about the, the world differently, like certainly is like heavily influenced from my father, who was like really raised in a pretty conservative kind of Catholic family. And he's like the I don't know if I would even call it rebelled against that, but he is like the complete inverse to so if you kind of think about like how much your kind of childhood or circumstances or family beliefs like inform your own beliefs. He's kind of example of running counter
0: to that. He thinks about the world <laughs> um, unlike any person I know. <laughs> But what a rich, like, education to have someone who's reading such rich history to you at such a young age on a, such a regular basis.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, we, I, I guess I, I didn't really know any different. So there were, like, probably moments where through my childhood I met other dads of kids and thought, like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure they're not.
0: That's not Winston yeah. Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: but it's like one of those things that classically over time you look back on and you're just incredibly grateful and thankful for like, I'm just incredibly grateful and thankful for the upbringing that I had and and just constantly blown away by what my parents, the the stability that my parents were able to give me and my siblings. And, you know, I, I think, they certainly had their ups and downs, like most kind of Australian families. Uh, they ran their own kind of manufacturing company through the 80s and 90s that really got destroyed when the borders got opened and importing uh, manufacturing goods became like a lot more economically uh, attractive than like developing them onshore. And I think that the one thing that, uh, really, that I really reflect on, especially now that I'm a father of, a two-year-old is that all that stress and like also being a founder knowing what it's like to build your own business is like all the stress the highs and lows that they went through the financial insecurity the you know my dad went back to university at waga when i think he must be like 42 43 to start a brand new career as like a chemist so he was like a 44 year old student learning how to be a pharmacist was that they never let that seep into our kids you know me and my siblings lives like wow we we had you know a very like idyllic protected stable childhood and you know every reason for that not to have happened when you kind of think about the, the the ups and downs that they've navigated as
0: as parents as humans wow i'm so glad tom asked me to ask you that question.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know how I ended up there after the. No,
0: that's really an amazing dimension, and I mean, no wonder you got a scholarship to go to a, an awesome school. And that leads me to wondering how you ended up becoming a miserable lawyer.
1: Yeah, well, that's the that's the irony is that you get all this opportunity to access whatever part of the. I mean, if you take those opportunities, whatever part of the workforce that you wish, if you work hard enough, and I chose a part of the workforce that ultimately I wasn't very good at. And as a consequence, I was miserable in. So again, not a particularly unique story. But when, when I got to the end of worked hard. So far you know, it's it pretty unique.
0: Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, I was I was a studious, like I I wasn't like I definitely wasn't like academically gifted, but I was like a hard worker. I was a studious kid. You know got decent enough marks in high school to really be able to choose what i wanted to do post you know my hc at the time and like many people didn't know what i wanted to do and kind of spoke to my parents about it and then like, like you know obviously in their advice and they said this to me at the time and said they're limited by their own experience like you don't know what you don't know and going and studying law the, the prevailing view back then was law was like it becoming that's where it was like really starting to become like a generalist degree where it's like if you don't know what to do like you can go study law and that will open up like a bunch of different pathways and you know i kind of took that approach and really wanted to get out of sydney and decided to study law at A&U, uh, in canberra and despite going to like a great law school great university got to the end of that degree and I feel like I was like conscientious around doing work experience, working in different environments, trying to expose myself uh to di- different careers, but you know, especially in camera, there's like only so much you can kind of choose from. Got to the end of that degree and and really, really kind of just followed the crowd and didn't know what to do and decided to apply for your clerkship and go into kind of private practice, which is like actually oddly a very specific career when you think about it like when you like actually look at like the skill set and the type of work you do as a private lawyer it's like a brand like when you're approaching this from like hey like i'm going for a generalist degree i'm trying to get my options open you actually end up in like a very niche field which as i might talk about later actually became a little bit of a trap like i almost felt suffocated and unable to break free of the profession, which like resulted in me making a pretty drastic decision to, to go and build, uh, forage. But yeah, that's certainly like where the, the, the you know, like most founders, uh, the companies that they build are born out of, uh, their own experience, a particular pain point, uh, that they experienced. And for me, it's no, it was no different. That pain point was, you know, we've kind of popularized this myth that you've got to go through some level of protracted misery to find your first threatened job and that didn't make sense to me i i ended up in a lot as a lawyer in private practice and i uh, was surrounded by brilliant people smart people good people but was just not suited to it and uh, you spend a few years trying to do it and you figure out eventually that it's like not a great fit for you and it took me three or four years to kind of reach that realization before i ultimately left
0: wait, sorry, just to clarify, it took you a few years to realize that-
1: No, it took me instantly
0: No, this is important because like a lot of the time it's hard to know when you're stressed or anxious and that this just doesn't feel right. And then acknowledging that takes time. It doesn't sound like it was the case for you, but share that journey of like learning that, okay, this is not where my time is best suited.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I knew straight away like i could even tell like during my uh i always remember i had this like other yeah the, the, the the it just didn't come natural to me i wasn't like deeply engaged or like super curious i think that's like a really good acid test is like are you just curious about the work that you're doing are you kind of curious to learn more like one of the things that i love trying to find like the, the high performers in forage uh, are the people who are just inherently very curious about what we're building why we're building it they're curious when it comes to speaking to their uh, our customers to our students so i think like curiosity is like always like a good acid test for whether like a career is like a, a good fit for you and i never had that curiosity it always felt like a grind and, and i knew that almost instantly and i always remember like one of my good friends. She decided she kind of got a clerkship at the same time, got to the end of the clerkship uh, and then decided to take a marketing job at like a large technology company and rejected going into private practice. I remember being like so blown away by her doing that. I was like, oh my God, like what is she doing? Like she's like, private Practice career in front of her. And in retrospect, like jokes were on me, because like in retrospect, I look back at her and that decision, and she was so comfortable in her skin. She knew what she wanted to do. She was like willing to walk away from that opportunity, and she was walking to another great opportunity, but not an opportunity that I think most of our friends, or uh, you know, what you've been taught in law school, was like the, the pinnacle of your profession. But I look back at that decision as like, oh, I wish, I wish I had have had. That level of conviction that level of knowledge to have made that informed decision and you know as much as i feel like i did learn things as being a lawyer and some of those things have held, uh, served me well i also just don't i don't accept the fact that like there was probably a much better route for my career a much better arc for my career i would have been better served had i made more informed decisions like earlier on which again is is what we're focused on at 4-H
0: so during uni days, what was spiking your curiosity then?
1: That's a really good question. I, I certainly uh, tried to bounce around a, a few different things. So early on, I was really interested in government and politics and got my way into a job being like the most junior, junior, uh, burger, part-time working for a politician in Australia Parliament House for a couple of, maybe I did that for like two years did so that a team and uh yeah quickly found out that was like not the environment i had a really fascinating uh, experience there but like really kind of found out quickly that that's not what i wanted to do uh, i then decided i wanted to try, try kind of consulting and um again just like hustled my way into kind of like a consulting job for a really small consulting firm that was based in camera and again Realized pretty quickly that's not what I wanted to do. And then that's where I kind of was like, all right, well, the third thing I'm going to do is like go and become a lawyer. And so I I always had this like mental model in my head when I was like going through university, which was like the only way to like discover what's going to align with my skills and interests is to like test these different things out. But the tyranny of time is like you just and like access to different jobs means like it's a really difficult to be able to go and like test out all the different jobs that are available to you and like get that kind of quick feedback loop on like what's suited to you and what's not suited to you. You have that, that kind of sunk investment where you're like, okay, I need to spend 6, 12 months doing this. Can I even get the job around right the right firm? And so just because of how truncated that time was, I could only try out like two or three things over that period of time and i do feel like i was actually diligent and trying to like create those opportunities uh for me but i went into law not not having tested it before and then i committed to it and and that's where the sunk cost fallacy came through and uh, i persevered for it with a couple of years so yeah i was i going back to your original question i was i was just curious in uh a bunch of different fields and none of them none of them really stuck
0: um You've now raised millions of dollars with Forage, and I want to take you right back to the beginning. Can you share what the journey was like when it was initially named Inside Show, oh. how you sort of came to that idea?
1: Yeah, it's it's funny because I find that, like, Every founder is different, but like a lot of founders have this like revisionist history where they're like, oh, when I was like four <laughs> years old, I had like 11 A's to stand, and like I was always destined to be That just was not me. Like I never saw being a founder in my tarot cards. I, I never thought that I, I used to. My parents were small business owners, so I think to some extent that probably influenced me but certainly didn't think that I was going to go off and, and become a founder but when I was working at the law firm what I ended up realizing was that a lot of students whether it was from a people from my past were reaching out to me like asking like hey like how did you get that job like how did you what's it like like can you help me get that job do you know someone in this and like often these students were like students that were uh, friends, but friends of friends. And like often these students were people that were coming from families or backgrounds that maybe they they didn't have like a network to lean on to like give them this type of information. And so that kind of led me and a couple of friends, I got like enough of these requests after a while that it led me and a couple of friends to set up a platform. And then that's where I met my co-founder, Pasha. Uh, to set up a platform which ultimately had young professionals that were based in Sydney on like one side. Uh, and then students could kind of like request help, career help through this platform. And the idea was that you would kind of pay a fee. That fee would be donated to one of our kind of partner charities. And so that way, and it was like a very normal fee, but that way like students would kind of ultimately getting access to like insights that they wouldn't have usually had. And so honestly, like, I I had no intention of like leaving my job. I was just about to get engaged. So I was like trying to be uh, as stable as humanly possible. Um, And I I remember, you know, as I was like setting up this platform, I needed a URL uh, and I was like away with a couple of friends. And one of the people there was like, oh, you should do inside Sherpa. It's like your inside guides. And so you know, you kind of check on GoDaddy, you get the URL and you set it up. And I had no intention, like again, no intention of being a founder, becoming venture backed, raising money, any of that. And then so we did that for a couple of months. And uh, ironically, the I was like working in MA at this like firm and it was like all open plan. And the team behind me was doing uh acting for a fund that was like investing in this like startup accelerator, uh, wasn't StartMate, unfortunately. I didn't even know Startup uh, existed <laughs> at that point. And well, in actual fact, um, we ended up going eventually, along down the, the the story, we ended up going to Y Combinator. And Tasha's got this uh, screen grab that he still shows me where he's like, instead of going to this accelerator, we should go to YC. And I write back, what's a YC? So that was like my level of knowledge of like startups and uh, venture funding. Uh, a few weeks before leaving, uh, but anyway, this accelerator, it was a Friday afternoon. I happened to not have much work. I heard this deal happening in the background. I logged on to their website and I saw the application and I was like, oh, this application looks, it was like dropping your LinkedIn and dropping a paragraph on what you're building. I was like, oh, that's a very low bar it's actually a great hack in retrospect, but a very low bar. So I did it. And within one, and I just said, this is what I've been doing with this platform and that evening i got a phone call from the founder of that accelerator uh, who basically said if you leave your job in seven days um and start full-time on this i will give you your seed funding, and you'll be part of our cohort and i'd never raised this with my wife I'd never raised it with anyone and so i literally went home told my wife and um we decided <laughs> ironically she would tell the story it made financial sense to go off and try and do something (laughs) by myself, which in retrospect is like the most comical, uh, most comical, you know, conclusion that we could have reached at that time. But yeah, sure enough, that next, I think it was like two days later, I handed in my notice and five days later I started this accelerator and uh, it, it, it felt very emblematic of like what had happened to my career. I was working on like, I think it was like level 58 of Governor Phillip tower and then Five days later I was on level two of the A and P building, the co-working space where Stern and Chalk used to be uh back in twenty, twenty seventeen. And it felt emblematic that I'd gone from the 59th floor to the second floor. But I'd never been happier and um truly kind of looked back on those days uh very nostalgically. But um uh, you know, they were there was a long year. But yeah, that that transition into uh inside Sherpa was was not a very well-designed or thought-out uh, process. I was actually trying to get a job anywhere, like outside of war at the time, and had um, applied to a couple of VC funds in Sydney for like associate roles and whatnot, and I just kept hearing like, hey, you're a lawyer. Like, we're not going to hire you. <laughs> um, and so then ultimately became, yeah know, a founder.
0: That's one of the things about Wild Hearts, and it's, it's worth pausing and calling out that Wild Hearts is effectively sharing the stories of people doing their life's work. And you didn't have a tarot card that said you were going to be a founder. But if you actually look back at your life and all the events that we've highlighted so far, you can see you can see how all of the stars align to you solving this problem. And then, then it, it's just like unfolding on itself in a way.
1: Yeah. And it's it's like one of those like really trite startup sound grabs that you hear. But I, I truly do believe it, which is like if you were to ask, like, how did you how did you kind of get to this point? I would say that kind of as you pointed out there, I was always obsessed with the problem. Like I had fallen in love with trying to solve this problem. My, it was like the confluence of my life experience of of my family's life experience. Falling in love with the problem was like much more effective than being like, oh wow, I've got this like great idea because I had never really had a good idea of how to solve it. Uh, which actually helped me in the long run because it meant that I didn't have this sense of like irrational loyalty to an idea or to a solution. It was like, no, I've got to figure out how to kind of solve this problem. And so, you know, from that marketplace idea to like a couple of different iterations, I feel like I could kind of more coldly and like objectively like move on from uh, different solutions that weren't working. Whereas like the number one reason, like, you know, many companies kind of die in those early stages is this like incessant dogmatic like loyalty to like your solution or your way of like solving that particular problem. Whereas it's the founders that can kind of be like, okay, that does not work, cycle into to like the next experiment. Are the ones that, yeah, I don't have data to back this up, but uh, anecdotally, are the ones that, you know, typically kind
0: of do go on to figure out how to actually build something that users want. 100% agree. And I mean, then it's just that journey of, okay, A, do I have an authentic connection to this problem? And B, do I have a set of unique insights that intersect between the group of customers that I'm solving this problem that I have for and how I'm ultimately going to reach them and then have them to say thanks by paying us? And and, and,
1: and don't get me wrong, there are founders out there that may not have, like, there is probably a bucket of founders out there that might not have an authentic connection the problem that they that that works for them and you know they've always wanted to be a founder and they're great business builders like i'm sure there's that example just in my and i'm like really careful not to i suppose like generalize or standardize like what the founder journey or skill set is because like every founder is like so different so they should be but i do think that for me the only reason that it's like worked out for me was because of that authentic connection with the problem that's like that's what worked for me
0: yeah But I mean, if you look across Blackbird's portfolio, I think there's an argument for 100% of them having an okay connection to the problem. And I think, actually, one of the most revealing questions that I ask is, where do you get your energy from? And then the thing that pops into their mind is usually a pretty good leading indicator where they're ultimately going to spend a lot of their time. And while there might not be a clear connection to the problem itself, there might be a spike on where their energy hits off that is related to whatever the unique insight that they're building but that's a lot more rare than that obsession to that problem that we touched on anyway so inside sherpa then let's fast forward to how you changed the brand name to forage and what the business looked like then
1: yeah i mean we always knew that we we're going to move from inside sherpa because inside sherpa was like really connected to this like you know couple of guys no idea what we were doing never meant to be kind of full-time on it. it was really meant to be a side hobby. So we always knew that we were going to have to change our brand name, but it's something that like always, you, you know, like, especially in those like pre-seed and seed stages, when you're like just trying to figure out how to get customers, build a product that works, it's always something that like constantly got deprioritized. And there's always a perception that you like built brand equity in, in that brand. And you're like, oh, the switching yeah. costs, like what is the switching cost? Whereas like in our, like, I mean, that's the, the, the irony know we had no brand equity. We were definitely overstating one of the brand. It was like 50 students knew who we were in like maybe two or three companies. Like no one would have done it blindly if we had a like, change at the time. But you we always found excuses not to deal with it. And then when we raised our Series A here in the U.S., that was really the point where it felt like I was kind of, I not again, probably wasn't the case, but I felt like I was kind of crossing the Rubicon. I, I thought that was at the point of no return. If I didn't make that decision to rebrand at that point, it would would never have happened, and it was a neat point to wrap it up with our fundraise. And we took a very like legally conservative, you know, given we had so many lawyers in our company, and we'd been very conservative with trying kind to of find a, a brand name that we had trademark protection over. Uh, but I re- Forage is like, I, I feel proud of Forage. I never felt proud of Inside Sherpa. Wow. And that matters. Like pride, I always say this to our team, which is like, yeah, when we measure product, when we measure brands, like we want to look at actual metrics that matter. But there's something also to be said for like looking at your product, looking at your brand. And like, don't worry about metrics for a second. Like, do you take pride in it? Like, do you look at that and be like, like I am proud of that work? And that's why I love the transition to the brand of Forage because it is a brand that I'm really proud of. I think it's a brand that uh, represents what we do really well, which is like, you know, from the student side, our mission is to help get motivated students into great jobs. And that idea, that motif of like curiosity, foraging for skills, being like really proactive Uh, we think kind of works on on that side of the brand. And on the other side, on the employer side, the employers that we love to work with are the ones who, you know, don't look at traditional markers for success, aren't looking at the same five schools for talent. They're like, they're not waiting for applications to come to them, which like ultimately inhibits the breadth and diversity of talent that they might access. Like they're out there foraging for talent. They're out there like doing the hard work, getting in front of, students that they may not have historically interacted with. And so, yeah, that brand change happened. Uh, yeah. I think it was May, 2020, just after COVID uh, mm-hmm. and then that's how we changed from such a bit of orange.
0: And perhaps just in one or two sentences, just describe the problem that you're solving on both sides, both for students and for employers.
1: Yeah, so on the student side, we we help motivated students get into great jobs, and we do that by creating job simulations with some of the world's leading companies that allow students to road test different careers through kind of these self-paced online interactive courses. And you build career skills, you build career confidence, you build career visibility through these simulations, and. Uh, Our employers use these simulations to impact and educate a broad and diverse candidate pipeline with the ultimate goal of uh, attracting and hiring exceptional talent that are kind of truly good fits with particular roles within their companies.
0: Mm. Let's talk about how you thought about building and balancing the marketplace dynamic on both sides at the beginning. How did you deal with that tension of supply and demand?
1: Yeah, it's it's always, I mean, it's something that we still deal with today. I think in retrospect, so like any marketplace, it's kind of chicken and egg in the early days. Like I tried to get the companies on board. The companies would only come on board if like there were already students on board, but the students would only get on board if there were companies on board. So you kind of got to figure out how to like solve that situation. So, I mean, the way that we did it, which is, again how like a lot of b2b b2E, uh, B2E um, companies sell is I went to companies that I knew I went to Kingwood mallisons where I used to work and they were the first firm that jumped on uh to forage and then I managed to get one or two other customers on board but on the student side what we would always we, what we used to do was we would once we had like two or three programs that were live, we would create tiles for so like, hey, a new big four accounting firm is uh, about to create a course with forage, like pre-enroll now. And so we would collect so students could like pre-enroll and we would go around to the big four firms and say whoever you know buys our product first will get distribution. We'll have like five thousand students that can tell you where they're studying, what they're studying. Um, they're already waiting for the program. So you're kind of de-risking that value proposition uh, on the employer side. I think the other kind of industry-specific tension that we've had to navigate over the years with our particular marketplace is like one side of our marketplace is like inherently like very cyclical with the economy. So when the economy is doing well, employers are hiring more. They're spending more money on tools such as ours. Whereas the candidate side is like very counter-cyclical, which is like when the economy is doing well, candidates that typically are like it's easier for them to find a job they're typically not engaging with as many job seeking tools and so it's kind of always felt like a bit of whack-a-mole between those two we We've felt that shift especially in the last like 12 18 months where the employer side of our marketplace has certainly become kind of more challenging whereas the job candidate side has like exploded mm-hmm. in the us whereas The early years was like the inverse. We were finding that the employer side of our marketplace exploded, and then the job seeker side was like more difficult to get work. And we would, you know, our cost per acquisition on the student side used to be like exponentially more than what it is. And now those numbers um, have inverse, uh, are now inverse. So that is like one of the like specific marketplace challenges that we face. When you think about supply and demand, it's like one side is inherently always going to be kind of cyclical and the other side's always going to be counter kind of cyclical.
0: I'd love to hear how you thought about that challenge internally and whether that was about spending more money to acquire customers or whether it was about updating the user journey to achieve X and any other sort of ideas that you might've had that have sort of helped.
1: Yeah. I'm not going to pretend that I have all the answers because, like, we're still figuring this out uh, today. You know, 150 enterprise customers and, you know, millions of students uh, using our product. What we've... Uh, the way we've got about it is we've spent a lot of time educating our customers on taking a longer-term view around the way that they engage and attract talent. So rather than looking at, the attraction and talent as this like very point in time transactional moment where like you reach out to a candidate, they apply and then you've put a bum on the seat within like a three month period is that in order to like build a better business, a better workforce, you really need to be nurturing that relationship uh, a long time in advance. And there's like these constant micro moments where you need to be kind of nurturing those relationships with, uh, candidates And so, yeah, like right now, the next three, four months, like you might not be hiring a stack, but in a year or two years time, it's not as simple as just like turning the tap on and like rebuilding, like, you yeah, know, building that, um, uh, engagement straight away. So where we've like, in the last 12, 18 months, we've had to get much sharper with this where we've spent a lot of time is like really kind of educating the customer that while they are inherently very cyclical and how they think about attracting talent is that, you know, the markets will turn and like, you want to be prepared otherwise like you're going to lose to competitors. And forage is a tool, which is like really well placed to help you build that engaged talent pipeline and do that over a number of years.
0: Does that mean you sell to a different part of uh, an employer's budget? Just this constant like branding exercise, whether you are hiring or not hiring?
1: yeah so i think that's something that we've learned over time we're doing that go-to-market strategy for 2024 right and i was just speaking to our vp of customer success sales at the moment and kind of getting that right yeah it's difficult to get that right but what we're really focused on with our customers is kind of high share and like showing the long-term compatibility About hires into their organisation, so like I think, I think we spoke about this the other day. Like when we talk to our customers, um, I think historically there's been this uh, approach to recruitment about getting bums on seats as quickly as possible. Whereas like what we're really focused on forage is like how do you get the right bums under the right seats so that they become, uh, you know, a really Productive contributor to that uh, company over like a sustained period of time, and like measuring that downstream impact is something that like most HR tech companies haven't done. It's not like a conversation that they've like proactively had, and so. For that reason, we really focus on selling into the talent acquisition teams uh, themselves. Um, and we have experimented with like selling into not-for-profits, like the corporate social responsibility teams, the DEI teams, like there are different budgets that we can pull on. But like, if you actually look at our data around kind of gross dollar retention, net dollar retention, like where we have the best retention, it's like, unsurprisingly, it's the teams that like, ultimately benefit from the north star product metric of forage which is like getting the right people into the right seats they care about that whereas when you're kind of selling into um, a different part of the organization and that's not ultimately their objective or their objective is slightly different that revenue just doesn't tend to be as stickier as as you would like it. so when we were doing this kind of go-to-market planning like you know part of our emphasis on 2024 is being like really sharp with who our ideal customer profile is and who our ideal economic buyer is like within an
0: organization so it's becoming much more disciplined with that i do love that and i mean in the back of my mind i'm also thinking okay so boyer starts company didn't realize that he was going to start a company then realizes that Uh, this product is going to be very valuable for some of the biggest customer logos on the planet. What did you learn about selling to those organizations? Uh, if you could go back and say, please do this, this, and this, what would some of those lessons be?
1: Yeah. So the first thing that sticks in my mind is like, if you read any kind of startup book or go to an accelerator or like anything about startups. Like we always talk about product market fit, right? Which is like this idea that if customers aren't pulling your product out of your hands and you're like trying to like keep up with demand and whatnot, like you don't have like a product and like that is so popular. And like that, that is true for like most companies out there. I think one thing that I found is like, yeah, we still, I still not sure if we have like true, true product market fit, but When you're selling to enterprise, it's different. Like SAP's like talent acquisition team isn't pulling any software out of the hands of like vendors. So when I think about product market fit in the context of enterprise, like it's actually really different. Like firstly, it's like product market fit is like but one component. It's not even like, sometimes you don't even need to have a product market fit and you can kind of make it work uh, in terms of the product itself. But it is like, a, there are like different variables. There is like sales, like sales market, like sales channel fit. Um, you have uh, product market fit. And like ultimately, uh, it's also about kind of human relationships, uh, like selling to enterprises about human relationships. Like, can you build, like, can you break in? Can you build trust? Can you maintain that trust? That is like you can have the best product in the world, but like if you can't do that second part, like you are gonna lose contracts, you are gonna lose business. So I think the one one thing that I would have told myself uh early on is that having a great product which delivers value to customers is important, but it is not that in itself isn't sufficient to grow as a business. It's like, you've got to figure out the next part. Like, you've got to figure out how to creatively break into these companies. You've got to figure out how to build relationships with like different parts of that organization and how to maintain that trust over a period of time. And if you don't do that second part, especially in this market right now, it is so easy for that uh, those enterprises to like remove you off their budgets and mm-hmm. go with like another vendor, even if their product is like, you know, five times worse. Um, So that's like one of the first things. The second thing- Can you you also
0: share what you creatively did to build that trust?
1: Once we were in or upfront, doing it upfront was like really hard because another thing I learned is like signals matter. Um, At least in the US market, signals matter. So we were like a small company. We had like no real investors at the time. You know, we'd raised like 100 150 grand at the time. And I was like trying to sell to like Goldman Sachs. I didn't go to Stanford. I didn't work for a firm. Uh, you know, I didn't I hadn't done anything. And um, what I realized, as much as it like irked me, was that signals matter in building that trust. So, you know, us going to why combinator mattered. Like that was like it was like it by itself wasn't sufficient, but it was like a badge of trust that like enterprise could be like, okay. I know why combinator they're funded by white combinator, so therefore, like they must be like semi credible. Um, the other kind of real obvious lever for trust that we did was we would focus on selling to big global brands in the Australian market where we had relationships, and then bring that experience over to the US and say, hey, like we're working with KPG in Asia Pacific. Um, we would also like to work with KPMG. Yeah, you'd always figure out how to um, word it, but we'd like to work with KPMG in the US. And so we could send them the link to the job simulation in Australia and then I would be like, a lot of Australian accents on here, but like you just by <laughs> having something to point to, like a product that work, brands that they uh, could see, that certainly helped. Another thing we would do is we would work tirelessly on building Aussie relationships with our Australian customers and then we would get our Australian who usually had no connection overseas. Like a lot of these brands are like franchise models. So they're not like fully integrated partnerships, but we would get them to do the outreach for us. So we would get like say KPMG Australia to email the head of early talent at KPMG in the U S and be like, Hey, like we're using this product. I'm your colleague over here. They're a great company. And so often like markers of trust or uh, credibility, have greater equity in them when they're not coming from ourselves. So like the best the best way that we could find that trust was like getting these Australian customers to basically do our outreach for us in the early days. And that's actually how we got our, our very first customer in the U.S., which was Biden Case, which is one of the big uh, New York law firms. Uh, we were working with their um, Australian office she actually used to be at one of the other firms but she kind of went into bat for us and introduced us to have global talent acquisition. we got them on board and then it it does become a kind of game of dominoes like you can go and get one case or kpmg or pwc or whoever it is then within that market that makes the next one slightly easier and the one up to that slightly easier so my big takeaway here on uh, it's not it's not rocket science is that getting those early customers uh, breaking into enterprise was really about how do you collate these little signals of trust that culminate in the point of like, I will have the conversation with you. That's like what you get to is like, I will have the conversation with you. And then it's a different kettle of fish. Then you kind of go to like work out how to like demonstrate the value prop of the product itself, how to navigate their budgets, their procurement, their legal systems. But the trickiest part was always like, do I trust you enough to even have the conversation with you? Yeah. Um, but we'd always back ourselves when we got the conversation. You know, Our conversion rate would be 27% uh, from kind of conversation to close, which was like right. pretty good compared to yeah. our counterparts. But we, and we still struggle to this day, it's like, Building that kind of pipeline of, of trust uh and, and pipeline of conversations is always the trickiest thing because I like, people are busy, people are scared. People also know when they jump onto that call with you, like they're gonna get pitched something. And it's much easier to like avoid that conversation than to have that conversation.
0: And I cut you off. What was the second lesson you that you were gonna share? That was epic.
1: Oh, yeah, the second thing was around. I think a lot of Australians probably I don't want to generalize, but I certainly kind of quite this part to being Australian uh, is like getting uncomfortable with the way that you try and break into these, it's a fine balance, like breaking into these companies, but like you have to teach yourself to do things, put yourself out there in a way that I definitely never had to do as like a lawyer, like as a lawyer, you kind of just get work, put on your desk and like you go off and do it. And even like, the partners, right? They're kind of living off the brand. Like I'm sure some say that they do b d but like let's be honest, like most of them are kind of living off the brand name where like work is, it's, it's, it's constant. Whereas um, when you're like a brand new product, you're foreign, you're trying to break into the Goldman Sachs, the Walmart's, these like mega, mega companies. You have to like do things that kind of, you might squirm at. And if you aren't willing to do the thing, like whether that's like, you know, it's multi-threading, like hitting up people on LinkedIn, asking people for introductions. Like, you know, I would find YC founders or any founder. I would like literally go through all YC founders, like link histories and be like, Hey, I saw you worked at PwC in a previous life. Like, do you still know the early talent team there? Like, would you introduce me? And like, I'm not naturally i not naturally the type of person who like feels comfortable just like asking for favors, but like you just have to like whatever levers and you know some are like a byproduct of like privilege to there. Like I was like push enough to get into YC, which allowed me to do that. But like whatever lever is at your disposal, you kind of really have to do that, even if that makes you feel uncomfortable. Because if you don't, like you're kind of guaranteed to fail. Like the, as I said, when it comes to product market fit, the product itself is like not enough to break into these organizations if you're selling into enterprise. It might be, it definitely is on B2C, B2B even, but B2E, you've got to figure out how to like connect with humans in there. And and that, yeah, that kind of goes back to those, that point earlier around signals of
0: trust. Love that. I wanted to touch on an area which is quite open-ended, but we'll go for it anyway. Are you creating a category-defining company? And how do you think about a category defining company? What have you learned so far in that journey?
1: It's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> it's 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 satisfying, but like you know. I'd be lying if there were some days when I wake up and think like, I mean, the grass is always greener. be like, like maybe I should have like. Built another ATS. Not that the world needs another ATS. We've got <laughs> so many ATS's. But like, maybe I should have like stepped into an area where like I don't have to spend so much time, or a company has to spend so much time educating a customer on a brand new way of doing things. So I say we're category defining, not because it's particularly glamorous, because it's anything but glamorous. It's like really, really hard. And um, it, you know, the other thing is like, even if the category does ultimately exist like you kind of got to get your timing right as well there is like a graveyard of company of category defining companies that were just like ahead of the time that you know spent the time trying to educate the market or whatever and uh but you know a lot of money in the process of doing it only for like another company three or four years later uh to come in and and you know just for whatever reason the category emerged there so you know you, you know often like category defining uh, leaders or like first movers, like sometimes they're the ones that, that lose, even though they're kind of a first mover. So we're category defining in the sense that there is like no substitute for our product. We don't go into a customer and say like, hey, like you currently use this ATS, but like you should use our ATS because like our ATS is like this feature, that feature. What we go in and say is like, Hey, the way that you've done recruitment, we don't say it like this, but like the way you've historically done recruitment for the last hundred years is wrong. It's the wrong way around. Like instead of like hiring first and training second, like you should actually be using software that educates the candidate pipeline first and then using that pool of talent and the signals that are surfaced in, uh, in that experience to hire, hire exceptional candidates. So instead of looking at, like, did they go to Harvard or what their GPA is, like, their traditional markets for success, you need to actually be looking at this, like, brand new set of, like, signals and you do it through education, something that you've never actually done before. Uh, and so that's, like, why we're kind of like, We're really, like, painting a different future, uh-huh. uh, a different vision for what recruitment can look like. And, um, yeah, that's challenging because like these companies have recruited in a very specific way for, for a very, for a very long period of time. And it's hard to, it's hard to will that, uh, it can be challenging to, to kind of will that
0: future into existence. So first of all, ATS applicant tracking system, is that right? Yes. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, yes. I know, I know, (laughs) excuse the ignorance and the, Second thing is that uh, oftentimes you hear that the sales calls that go well is about searching about what their problem is and how you can meet that problem. It sounds like you have a different approach. Yeah. Can you share uh, why that's the case?
1: Well, the the difficulty, and this is like where our business becomes like really challenging. The difficulty is like the pain that we're solving. So, if I said told you earlier, I spoke earlier about how talent acquisition teams are really incentivized and their KPIs are really oriented around like getting bums on seats as efficiently as possible. But like that shouldn't actually be the purpose of talent acquisition. The purpose of talent acquisition is like get great talent in who go on to be great leaders and contributors to your company. It's about building a better workforce, a better company. So the people who actually experience that pain is like the business lines themselves, but they're not our economic buyer. Our economic buyer is like the talent acquisition team. So, so that's where it does get tricky. Uh, and we do do a lot of experimentation on this where like we will try and use like business. So like City was one of our flagship initial customers. And the only reason we got into city was because like the APAC head of sales and trading kind of saw our products. Um, we kind of came across their radar and they're like, this is the type of content that I wish uh, our graduates had learned before they came in here. And like, this is the type of content that should be taught in universities. And this is the type of content we should be looking at uh, when we're analyzing what talent to bring in. But the, as i said the budget holder actually sits in that talent acquisition team so we try and do our best to kind of connect those threads with talent acquisition which is like hey we get it we do help you efficiently get bums on seats but most importantly we're focused on getting the right person into the right role and the person who cares about that most is the person who's banging down on your door kind of complaining that the talent that you're fitting into the organization uh, is like ill suited for the roles that you're putting them in. It's ultimately, it's about the effective distribution of labor. So we do spend a lot of time trying to connect the pain point that business is feeling with what their role should ultimately be. But it's that, that it, it is challenging. Like it is tricky.
0: No doubt. I mean, there's this existing user behavior where they're incentivized by an archaic system. Where ultimately you're just trying to show them, hey, people who show, not tell, are the best kind of people. And we have millions of students showing, not telling.
1: Yeah, 100%. This is a weird analogy, but there is like a, there's this short termism in the way of thinking that like ultimately harms a company long term. It's always similar to how I see some of the problems around how public companies are regulated. You know, you have this overarching, responsibility as like a director, as an executive of, of a company to kind of shareholder returns and shareholder returns on like a very short turnaround. Uh, and that's kind of like short-term thinking actually can be incongruent with like good decision-making, the long-term benefit of the company. So, well, I think my head are just...
0: Is, this is good, actually.
1: Can you still hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it is kind of similar in the sense that often that short-term need to get people into seats as cheaply as possible uh, can result in kind of a long-term harm um, to the company where, you know, with some of our partner companies over here, they're hiring two and 3,000 entry-level hires each year. Uh, across their different business lines and they're seeing 65 to 70 percent attrition rate within that entry level hiring class within the wow. first three years of those highs. So you you extrapolate that out. It's, it's such a huge cost. And then there should always, of course, like these model, these companies always have some level of like inbuilt attrition needed, but nowhere near the level of attrition that they're currently um experiencing.
0: Wow. So how do you use customer love of these enterprises as a signal to then inform that sales journey.
1: Yeah. So this is something we've bounced around a lot on, uh, over the last few years. So my view is that like traditional markers, for like measuring customer success, like NPS, uh, or whatnot, just aren't great.
0: They're not great. Yep. Yep. I'm Yeah, a hater of NPS. <laughs> I
1: mean, the reason why NPS, and again, I can't speak outside of enterprise, but, like, let's say you've got, like, NPS for, like, the consumer product like Netflix, right? Like, yeah, I mean, if I get, like, a graph and I say, I get, like, I don't care, like, I'll, I'll tell them the truth. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. But, like, I don't have, like, a human relationship with, like, Netflix. I don't I don't care whether the product managers uh, are offended by my feedback or not. But with enterprise, it's different because, like, we have real human, like, relationships with these people we've known them for years like our team are like uh, you know trusted partners to them so often like nps is like really uh skewed by the fact that they're like conflating their like for our team with their like for our product and i always say to our company is like i am looking forward to the day where our customers stop telling us i love your team they're like trusted partners of ours And, you know, I'll reflect like, hey, we're not a consulting shop here. What I want them to be saying is like, we couldn't live without your product. We need your products. We would fall apart if we didn't have your product. And that tends to come seconds. And so recently we've started to hear that's coming right first. And that for us is like, okay, great. This is like customer love is when they're talking about our product more than they're talking about how much they love our team. Mm. Uh, Team, don't take that the wrong way, but that's like what I want to hear. But I always come back to, like, the gross dollar attention for us as opposed to net dollar attention. Like, if you ultimately you can measure like, I think people come up with, like, a million different ways to measure customer love. But what YC see into my head early on is, like, customer love is, like, are they paying money and are they continuing to pay money for your product? Like, that ultimately is, like, yeah, I value your product enough that I'm going to continue to spend money on it. And I used to use net dollar attention um, as that market for customer love. But why net dollar attention doesn't like work neatly for us is because like ultimately you have like one or two, like you have a handful of customers that do like a ton of expansion with you. And so that, if you have an account that goes from like 100 grand a year to like a million a year, then you're like in the you know range of like 10, 15 million of ARR. It skews your net dollar attention because you have like two or three outliers that make Mm. your net dollar attention look really good. Whereas like for us, gross dollar attention is like okay, like look at all our customers that we had 12 months ago. How much were they paying? And of say that of that thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, million dollars, whatever it is, what percentage of that renewed the year after? And like exclude any upsells or anything. And that for us is like a pretty good indicator for us of like where the customers love our product because it's like, yeah, it's easy to buy a product up front and be like, yeah, leap of faith. I'm going to use this. It's innovative. It's different. It's different for them to renew it. Like when they're renewing it, they're like, like customers truly not a customer until they renew their contract. Mm. And that, you know, you've got a customer. And so gross dollar attention for us was always that kind of indicator for whether customers were uh, loving our product. The only challenge with gross dollar retention is like it's a long, it's a long feedback loop, right? Like especially if you're doing twelve month, twenty four month, thirty six month contracts that we're doing, there is a long feedback loop in learning, you know, what that level
0: of like gross
1: churn looks like.
0: Hmm. So what what's your benchmark for greatness for gross? revenue. Retention. Yeah.
1: So uh, greatness, I mean, greatness, I would say is like over 95% uh, gross dollar attention. Um We're at 91% uh, yeah. right now. So for enterprise, like, I think, you know, we've only seen a 2% dip in our gross dollar retention over the last 12, 18 months, which. I think compared to our peers would be like almost best in class. And so we've found new business business difficult. So our revenue growth has definitely uh, slowed compared to what we were seeing between 2020 and 2022. But what keeps me up at night or what I like hang my hat on is it's only catastrophic or it only becomes a problem if our gross dollar dollar attention really starts to drop because markets will come and go and but if you are retaining your base um and they're coming back year after year like i still need to use your product still need to use your product that's the foundation for a great business so i'd love to see our gross dollar attention back over 95 percent but
0: yeah i mean anything above 90 percent is pretty amazing (laughs) And then for net revenue consumer. retention, it's it's my mental model is 118%.
1: Yeah, it's it's also different to consumer. Like if I set those numbers to totally. doing a consumer business, like they would be mental numbers. But with enterprise, you you do have typically because of the human relationships, totally. switching costs, how difficult it is to like disentangle the product. There are like natural hooks that make it harder for an enterprise to jump off your product versus again, using the Netflix, uh, if I jump onto Netflix and I'm like, there is like not one show on here that I like, like that's it. I'm just pressing terminate. It's month to month contract. So I, and I have so much respect for consumer founders because yeah, it, 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 that that is like one of the most difficult things to get right.
0: Well, I think like, I mean, I could talk to you for hours. I'm conscious of time, but there is something that I do. I remember reading ages ago that you were using the the superhuman model for finding product market fit. But in this case, it sounds like, uh, which people can check out. I think it's on first round. Um, they've got, yeah, yeah I can leave it in the, in the, recommend. Yeah, it's, it's very good. But have you thought about the, I'm sure you have, and I'd be curious to learn what they are, um, what the leading product indicators or signals are that, that are correlated or have causation to those higher or, or lower churning? Uh, yeah, brands.
1: yeah. So, and then, so that was my next point is that the the ultimate leading indicator for gross dollar retention for us is our north star product metric, which we call higher share, and so or wallet share, and so that it's like using the wallet share metric, which is what percentage of our partner companies hires are coming from our pool of talent. Now that when you hear that is actually kind of incongruent. Not incongruent, but like that's leaning into like the current system rather than being like really category defining in the sense that like ultimately that number itself doesn't measure whether we're getting the right person into the right seat. And so over the last few years, we've been developing a number of product metrics which are further downstream. So, Hmm. uh, you know, our forage is more likely to stay in their job longer because they're making more deliberate uh, informed career decisions. Are they happier in their jobs? Are they uh, more likely to get promoted compared to their peers? Um, so that's like where we actually see the blue sky opportunity where we can resonate at a CEO level with the companies that we're selling into. But the short term, in order to get there, you need to get the you need to get people into the organization, and that's how we are primarily judged, especially in uh, this market. So the the leading indicator for us from gross dollar attention is certainly what percentage of hires are coming from forage and then the second set of numbers is how much more likely is a forager to get hired versus a non-forager and that goes to quality so like what we'd love to see is that we may account for like 40 percent of a company's hires but we only need to count for 10 percent of their applications like we're not focused on mindlessly shoveling oh,
0: that's a great products. that's a great ratio though right
1: That's, yeah, so our ratio tends to be between...
0: That's amazing.
1: (laughs) That's, like, what we like to see. And it's, like, not surprising because these simulations are, like, they're not gimmicky, right? Like, they're, like, three, four, five hours where you're learning how to do DCF valuations. You're learning how to, you know, use open source framework, like, really specific company role-specific things that, like, demonstrate intent you're speaking about in the recruitment process. That, like, it all surfaces. So, like, I'm no doubt that they're is a causal connection between doing our simulations and getting that hiring advantage in the recruitment process. But yeah, that's what a lot of our partner companies, we say we we like to introduce positive friction into that recruitment process that you're not ending up with like more applications. It's about how do you end up with a, a higher density of high intent quality applications?
0: Yeah, a hundred percent agree almost like ties back to that initial question on, on where do you get your energy from and what, what are you curious about? And then you're following it up with actually doing something about it.
1: I mean, it's curiosity. it's, it's, it's literally, it's not the only signals that you can look at, but like it is is leading to start somewhere. Spend four hours, five hours, six hours, getting to understand my brand, my work, my people, my culture, are they leaving questions? Are they resubmitting work? Are they looking at the model work? they engage with the resources like i strongly believe that 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 correlates to like their ultimate ability to learn perform and succeed within an organization if they're displaying those signals earlier as opposed to like i have a high gpa or i went to the right school but i went to like a good school things that like can be a general marker of how hardworking you are but it's not a general marker of like intent for a specific role like you can be really studious Uh, hardworking and end up in a role that you end up hating and like you're curious and like you don't perform in it that was like my own experience so it's like how do you better surface that intent and that also helps the student right that we always say to our partner companies our programs are just as powerful in connecting you to the person that you ultimately hire as they are turning off someone that may have applied for a job, but then realize it's not suited to them. Like you don't want them in your pipeline. You don't want them in your company. It's, you'd much rather that um vetting process happen before the recruitment process. And mm-hmm. that's what we think job simulations will be knowing they do. You've
0: sort of touched on it, but I would love for you to share the ultimate product roadmap and product product vision uh for forage.
1: Yeah, our ultimate vision at Courage is to get the right candidate into the right job. And so what sticks out there is like the word candidate. Right now, we focus on early talent and we focus on students. But ultimately, my belief is that there is significant information asymmetry between candidates and employers like at a whole bunch of different inflection points. Uh, Whether you're like a parent returning to the workforce, you're looking to switch roles within a company, you're military personnel transitioning into civilian life, you're a career switcher. There are like tons of points like within someone's career where they're not sure about what an employer actually does. Am I suited to a role there? Should I be applying for a role there? And that's miserable for a candidate. It's also miserable for an employer who might end up with that candidate and find out the hard way that that fit was never there to begin with. And so we think that closing that information asymmetry between the candidate and the employer is one of the most powerful ways to ensure that the right person ends up in the right job. And that requires the employer to finalize to educate candidates realistically on what it's like to work in their organization and you've got to figure out how to do that at scale and that's why technology plays like a really important role here so like our ultimate vision is that companies are deploying a tapestry of like different simulations to candidates at different points within their careers educating them on what it's like to work in their company the skills that are required to succeed give people like the, the a meaningful chance to road test that career and like ultimately that will result in companies building better workforces and better companies because it's it goes back to that effective distribution of labor. And think about like, you know, without getting too kind of aspirational here, like think about like the, the broader or like consequences, Please. you know, just think about like general like, happy doesn't sound silly, but like general happiness. Like when it comes to career satisfaction, engagement with your work, like, you know, I always say to my team, like who you are outside of work you can't leave that at the door. That's who, you, you know, you, some of that comes into work and vice versa, like, you know, how you're experiencing work, it uh, impacts your personal life, it impacts your family, it impacts the people around you. And so if you've been around someone who's miserable in their job, it sucks. Like, nobody likes for <laughs> you, it. it's not good for them. Um, uh, and when you have someone who is like really engaged in their job and do love their job, like there are lots of positive our uh, uh, societal implications for that, and then you can even look at it from like an economic productivity perspective, which is like clearly more engaged workforces relate really to like better economic outcomes for for companies, and so that's why it should obviously be in their interest about how do you close that information symmetry. So you know you have like curious, engaged people in 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 the right roles. I, I, I inherently believe most people are curious, like most people are kind of can be engaged and motivated. It's about like, you need to put them in the areas that they're genuinely uh, genuinely curious. You can't just, there's no like general curiosity translates to every role that, that exists out there.
0: And to leave on a futuristic note, what does education look like in 10 years?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I've obviously spoken like very aspirationally about like what we're building, what the future looks like. Perhaps like,
0: controversial view
1: i don't think it looks that different to be honest like if you if you kind of like track through uh education over the last like 50 60 70 years it hasn't changed it, like it really hasn't changed monumentally so like whatever improvements we're going to see are not going to be like sweeping changes and we work with 1400 higher education institutions around the world incredible professors uh, incredible institutions And, like, even they will tell you, which is that the pace of change is slow. Like, in education, inherently, it is very, very slow. Uh, And so I aspirationally would like to see things change. I think the holy grail of, like, education is, like, personalization of education. And, like, many companies have, like, tried to do this in the past. Like every learner, just because of your age or, you know, where you are, like every learner is different. And so coming up with like personalized learning has always been that kind of holy grail. I think that with the advent of, uh, you know, LRMs, like everything that's happening in AI, open AI, I think that we are potentially like a step closer to that personalization happening, which is like really exciting. But pragmatically for me, I also hope that there is like this reversion to this like trained school type approach to education which is like yes there should always be a place for like academic learning but that should not be like the sole conduit or like the main conduit into the world of work and in actual fact i hope that education does become more responsive to workplace needs not because i'm some you know kind of callous capitalist that is like just thinking about like how to how do companies become more effective but it's about like how do you create how do you broaden the surface area of luck for uh young people to end up in roles that do stimulate them that they are curious and like the only way to do that is to expose young people to those different careers so if we're going to accept that like education institutions are going to change like that radically Uh, In the next kind of 10 years, then that's going to happen in like classrooms, whether that's in university, whether that's in high schools, whether that's in primary schools. So I hope that the curriculum continues to evolve, to recognize that education is a pathway, is the pathway into the workforce and to a satisfying, intellectually engaging, curious existence. And, you know, I hope that, yeah, education curriculums continue to evolve that way.
0: I would love that. I mean, I think your incentives are, are nicely tied to people's lives because if we spend eight hours at least every single day working, it'd be nice to have a bit of preparation.
1: Uh, and, and just the conviction. A bit confidence. of a
0: heads up, you know,
1: just the confidence of being like, yeah, <laughs> I'm meant to be here. Like I'm, you know, this is, this is where I want to be. Yeah. One can dream. I, did, I think we're getting slowly, slowly getting there, but yeah, um, yeah, I certainly noticed over the last couple of years that higher education especially since covid you know with the pressure that's happening on business models within university and you know consumers like increasingly expecting that universities produce graduate outcomes that you know commercially universities are kind of moving that way already but um yeah still
0: lots of work to be done on that note it has been an honor tom thank you so much for joining me on wild hearts
1: thanks mason and i appreciate your time and the thoughtful questions here
0: thank you so much for tuning into this episode if you left with more energy than when you started we'd be super grateful if you liked or subscribed left a review even shared it with a friend in case you want to keep in touch share feedback or even a pitch deck i'll leave my Blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch thank you so much for listening once again and we'll see you in a couple weeks godspeed